Well, our sermon text for this morning is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, but before we read that, let's pray together. Our Father, we, um, we do praise you as the one who supplies the needs of every creature of the earth. We praise you as the one uh, to whom we all look to uh, sustain us and provide for us and grow us and strengthen us. And we pray, Father, that we would look to your hand this morning, that we would look to you, that we would look to your word, that we would look to your son. And we pray that you would feed us, Father. Feed us on your word. Feed us on your gospel. Feed us on your truth this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, our, our sermon text for this morning is Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And uh, I mentioned to Deborah this week that we finally made it to verse 1, and that at this rate, it will take us 30 years to get through the book of Genesis. Well, she said, without missing a beat, that if we lived as long as the people in Genesis, that wouldn't be so bad. Well, we don't, and so I promise to speed up slowly. But this morning, we are looking at one verse, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This is God's Word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How do you begin a sermon on Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? It's the beginning of everything, right? Anything you can say, everything you can talk about, whatever we experience in life, it all traces back to this one point. Now, sure, there are things after this which are really important, which do a lot to shape our experience. Uh, the, the fall comes to mind, uh, not to mention the cross and the resurrection. But this is as far back as we can go. Here is where it all starts. If the five books of Moses are the beginning of the whole Bible and Genesis is the beginning to the five books of Moses, then Genesis 1 is the prologue to the book of Genesis and Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 is the prologue to the prologue. Right? This is the, the prologue to the prologue to the prologue, right? The beginning of the beginning of the beginning. This is where it all starts. And so we're going to dive right in and talk about three things this morning as we look at this verse. We're going to look at what God did, who God is, and what that means. First, what God did. How do you begin a story? It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was a dark and stormy night. Uh, those are probably two of the most famous beginnings of any books. Uh, one uh, praised, the other sometimes made fun of. But this beginning, I, I was thinking about how much to read this morning to give the context of Genesis chapter one, verse one, and I thought, I can't read anything to give the context of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Genesis 1, 1 is the context to all things. Genesis 1, 1 is the context to everything in the Bible. It's the context to everything that we know. 
And so Moses begins with a relatively straightforward sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this sentence really is a prologue, meaning it comes before the main action of the story. Uh, those who know Hebrew will tell us that there, there's a certain verb form that carries along the story, that moves the narrative forward. And we don't get to that verb form until verse 3 with, and God said, which means verses 1 and 2 are background. They tell us what happened before the action begins. They set the stage. You say, see the same narrative set up in a place like Genesis 24, verses 1 and 2, which say, uh, Now Abraham was old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said, right? Verse 1 of chapter 24 is background, and verse 2 begins the story. Now, this may not seem so significant, but, but it is, as we will see, when, when we begin to ask the question, what did God do? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What did God do? Well, the, the first thing we need to see is that God created all things. Now, there is some dispute as to what this phrase, the heavens and the earth, actually means. As with most of the verses in Genesis chapter 1, right, there, there's a discussion, there's a debate. Uh, and, and this phrase, heavens and earth, could actually mean two different things and often does in Scripture. It could mean the sky above and the earth below, the heavens and the earth. You see that in verses 8 and 10, actually, where God calls the expanse, heaven and the dry land, earth. But that's actually probably not what it means here. It, it could mean that if uh, verse 1 were taken as a summary of the chapter, but as I've already said, uh, it's better to take it as a prologue, as with the same narrative structure seen elsewhere, uh, Genesis 24 verse 1, for example. And, and that makes more sense out of verse 2, actually, because Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Verse 1 talks about the heavens and the earth. Verse 2 focuses in on the earth. And then for the rest of the chapter, we're focused on earth. It is the earth that is divided into heavens above and earth beneath. And so then, uh, what are these heavens in verse 1 that are otherwise unmentioned? Well, when God says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, it means both the spiritual and the physical world. Verse 2 then says, now the physical world was without form and void. Now, again, the, the clearest indicator that this is how to read verse 1 is verse 2. Right? Verse 1 introduces the heavens and the earth, the, the spiritual and the physical, the visible and the invisible. And then verse 2 focuses in on one of those two things. But really, all of Scripture testifies to this fact that God created all things, both visible and invisible. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6, the Levites pray, You are the Lord, you alone, you made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host 
the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. God not only made the heavens, but everything in it, and that host of heaven worships God. Now, who is that? Who is the host of heaven? Well, they're not talking about uh, the birds of the sky, but the angels in heaven. The word host means the armies of heaven. Who is that? But the angels. In fact, this word host becomes one of the titles for God, the Lord of hosts, meaning, as one songwriter put it, the God of angel armies. And when Genesis does sum up God's creative activity, it uses this very word, host. In chapter 2, verse 1, uh, Genesis says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. See, Genesis 1.1 proclaims God's creation of all things, visible and invisible. And Paul says as much in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, by his uh, kind of reverse parallelism, he shows us that heaven and earth refer to the visible and invisible worlds. So Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16 say this, He, God's Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Heaven and earth is all things invisible and visible. And yet we can't skip over what we just read in, in Colossians, right? How did God create all things? By Jesus, through and for him. Now, we'll talk about that more next week when we talk about creation by the Word, but the New Testament clearly teaches that all things were created through Jesus. The most famous passage is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, which say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Clearly echoing Genesis 1.1, John wants to tell us that the same word that became flesh in Jesus was already present and at work in the creation. In fact, nothing was made that was not made through him. And so when we talk about God making all things, uh, we must not think of the Old Testament God versus the New Testament God. We should never think like that. Uh, but neither should we think of just God the Father and not also the Son and the Spirit, right? It is our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who created all things. And He created them of nothing. Again, uh, whether this verse... Genesis 1.1 teaches of nothing is sometimes debated today. Sometimes people, uh, to, to defend it, though, they lean into the specific verb, created, as if that verb alone necessitated create, creation from nothing. But that's actually not the best line of argument uh, because uh, verses like in, in Psalm 102, Psalm 102 says that God creates, same verb, future generations. But those future generations are not made from nothing, right? But through the natural means of procreation. In Isaiah 54, God says he created the weaponsmith. But again, he created the smith not from nothing, but from his parents. 
Rather, the, the, the best way to argue that this verse teaches God made all things of nothing is really the way that we already have, right? If, if God created all things visible and invisible right here, according to Genesis 1.1, well, what else is there? Yeah, Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Meaning, there wasn't some pre-existent stuff by which God made the world. But you might say, uh, that verse says the universe was not made out of things that are visible. What about things that are invisible? Well, the, the point of the verse, Hebrews 11, 3, uh, is that the source of creation is the word of God, which, to be sure, is invisible, but it's not some pre-existent stuff. And remember, everything else invisible, God created in the beginning when he made the heavens and the earth. All things, both visible and invisible. So, so what did God do? He created all things, everything in heaven and on earth, everything visible and invisible, everything we can see and everything we cannot see. He created it all from nothing. He, he didn't start with a block of wood and think, hmm, now, now, what should I make out of this, right? He, he created all things of nothing. Now, we should add uh, one implication of this, which Scripture itself teases out for us, which is that even now, God upholds all things. He created all things, and He upholds all things even now. He didn't create and then skip town. Scripture teaches that the wind and rain and snow do His will, that the sun rises at His command. Hebrews 1.3 says this, again, about Jesus, that He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Why is there something rather than nothing? Because God in Jesus, that is through His Son, made all things and sustains all things by the word of His power this very moment. Well, that already brings us to the second thing that we want to see, which is who this God is. You know, you, you can tell a lot about somebody by what they make. Uh, th this was especially true, uh, I found, when I was in art school. Uh, at least once a week, right, we would put, uh, we would all get together and put whatever we were working on up on the wall for critique. And I, I bet a psychologist would have had a field day, right? Looking at our artwork, guessing at our family history, and diagnosing the neuroses of our souls, right? All of us there, our hearts on display on the wall for all to see. But what do we learn about God when we look at what He has made? Psalm 19 tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Paul tells us in Romans 1 that what can be known about God is plain to us because God has shown it to us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. But what do we learn from Genesis 1.1? What does God's creating all things in the beginning say about who God is? Well, it's worth noting first that, uh, and before we get into it, that there is no uh, apologetic here arguing for the existence of God. 
we are told what God does and by implication who God is, but that he is, is taken for granted. Moses doesn't argue that there is a God, and for good reason. When Moses was writing, the Israelites had just seen God bring them out of Egypt. They didn't need proof that there was a God. They didn't need an argument that there was a God. They didn't need proof that Yahweh was God. They did need to understand who Yahweh was and why he was taking such special care of them. And that's where the book of Genesis comes in. For Israel, the, the proof of God was in the Exodus. Now, we too can look back on such events, but for Christians, the definitive proof of God's existence is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. See, it, it is this event more than any other that demonstrates the God who is. It was testified beforehand in the scriptures and then witnessed and proclaimed by the apostles. It is Jesus' resurrection and the apostolic eyewitness testimony to Jesus' resurrection that, above all else, gives us evidence of God's existence. But still, we ask with Moses, what is this God like? Who is this God? And the first thing that we see is that God creating all things of nothing tells us that God is eternal. God has no beginning or end. He is outside of time because he made time. Now, that he made time markers is clear enough from Genesis chapter 1. As we will see, God created the sun and the moon to mark off time. But Hebrews 11.3, which we've already talked about, actually says, uh, By faith we understand that the universe, that is the ages in Greek, was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Uh, the word ages there can have a temporal connotation as it does elsewhere in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews talks about the end of the ages and the powers of the age to come. See, God, God created the ages. He created time. He created the succession, right? God created the already and the not yet, what we have experienced, are experiencing, and will experience because God created time itself. And of course, many scriptures tell us simply that God is eternal. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Paul says in 1 Timothy, simply God alone has immortality. And Hebrews 10.12 says that God's years have no end. Revelation 1, God introduces himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. God is eternal. Second, God's creating all things in the beginning tells us uh, that God is all-sufficient. You know, the worst forms of religion see God as needing what we have to offer. And so some forms of pagan and animistic religions teach that sacrifices feed God and sustain Him or give Him strength. Or even sillier, God is seen uh, like, like the Santa Claus in the movie Elf who has lost his magic because people don't believe in Him anymore. Right, that God is somehow dependent on us or somehow dependent on our faith. But God doesn't need anything from us. He created 
us and all things, right? If he wanted something, he wouldn't need to ask us for it. In 1 Chronicles 29, David prays like this. He says, but who am I and what are my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house for your holy name comes from your hand and is all your own. What could God possibly need from us if everything we have comes from him? That's the paradox that David is highlighting as, as he and the people of God give offerings to support God's house. And of course, it just highlights the fact that it's a blessing that God allows us to participate in his work. He doesn't need us, and yet he invites us into his work. Paul says something similar to David in Acts chapter 17. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You know, sometimes even Christians think of God as needy. Uh, maybe he created us because he was lonely. Or maybe he's up in heaven just hoping, wishing, longing for people to come to Christ so he can be happy. But we must come to terms with the fact that God has no need. Scripture does not teach that God created because he was lonely or hungry or bored. He was eternally satisfied in himself. And this is good news for us, right? Because it means God doesn't need us. So why create us? Well, the answer cannot be because of some lack in him. Rather, it is because of the fullness in him. God created us to share in the fullness of his joy. He is all sufficient in himself, sufficient in himself for himself, but also sufficient for us as well. God is eternal and all sufficient. And third, God's creating all things in the beginning shows us that God alone is God. God has no rivals. Again, just, just tease out the logical implications here. If God created everything, visible and invisible, then there is nothing that he did not create. No spirit, no angel, no demon, no God. Which means that he alone is God. Whatever other spiritual powers there may be in the world, he made them all. They are not his rivals, but his creatures. Even when scripture does refer to other heavenly spiritual beings as gods, lowercase g, it is clear that they are not God. For one, sometimes the point is they are so-called gods. But even if they might be referring to real heavenly beings, what we would call angels, the point is they are not like him. Exodus 15 verse 11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Isaiah 40, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. To whom will we compare this God? The biblical answer is no one. No one is like him. 2 Samuel 7, 22, therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. 
1 Kings 8, 23. O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on the earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants. Psalm 86, verse 8. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. And of course, if there were any doubt, God says in Isaiah 43, verse 10, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. Now, this doesn't change when we get to the New Testament, by the way. It's not that suddenly in the New Testament there are three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is still only one God in three persons. This is the, the mystery of the Trinity, but as mysterious as it may be, this is what Christians have always confessed, one God, three persons. Or to put it differently, it's not that when you get to the New Testament there is some other God besides the Lord. It's that we find out that Jesus Christ is Lord. It is the Lord, the only God in the second person of the Trinity who came down in the person of Jesus. And far from negating God's uniqueness, this actually furthers it, right? Who is like the Lord, awesome in power, keeping his covenant, abundant in steadfast love, marvelous in his unity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Who is like the Lord? No one. No one is like our God. We see from Genesis 1-1 that God is eternal and all-sufficient and the only God. And finally, we notice that this God is over all. You know, source-critical scholars see a discrepancy here between Genesis chapter 1 and what follows. In Genesis 1-1, God is called God, uh, in Hebrew, Elohim. But later in the story, God's name pops up, Yahweh or Jehovah. And for them, those scholars, critical scholars, this is a sign of different authors. One author, they might say, saw God as overall, a universal God, Elohim. Another author saw God as a tribal deity, loyal to a particular people, Yahweh. Hence, two different gods and therefore two different authors. But that criterion doesn't pass the, is this the way real life speech works test. Right. Uh, let, me, let me give you an example, right? Deborah, my wife, might call me different names depending on context and purpose. I don't mean that kind of name. I mean, I mean different titles, right? Uh, if she is addressing me, she will probably call me Luke. If she is addressing my kids, she will call me Papa or Daddy. In fact, she will call, probably use Papa or Daddy depending on what child she is talking to. If she were trying to get me out of bed in the morning to go to church, she might say, tongue-in-cheek, Pastor, it's time for you to get to work. She would use four different names, not because there are four different Debras, but because each name communicates something slightly different and therefore is used at different times to communicate, to, to communicate those different meanings. The, uh, the, the documentary hypothesis accepts the different meanings but it assumes they are four different authors, as if one author could not use variation to communicate with precision. Well, we do better to believe 
that when Moses wrote Genesis, even if he was drawing on earlier writings, he did so with his brain turned on. He used Elohim here on purpose. The point that God is first and foremost, not the God of Israel, but the God over all. He is Elohim. And being God of all and creator of all, all things, all peoples, all nations, every child, every individual, every heart belongs to him. Psalm 24 puts it this way. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. God is over all and the owner of all. As an artist has propriety over his work, so God has propriety over us. We are his to do with as he pleases. Our triune God created all things of nothing, displaying his eternity and all sufficiency as the only God who is over all. Which brings us to our last point. What does this mean for you and me? So point three, what that means. In the beginning, God. One of the ways I try to tease out the implications and applications of a passage is by asking a series, series of questions, three of which are these. I ask, uh, you know, what are the worldly counterfeits to the teaching of this passage? And what are the temptations to compromise with the world on the teaching of this passage? And what are the caricatures of the teaching of this passage, which may or may not be held by the church at any given time. Well, well, the great counterfeit, right, the great counter narrative and the lie of the devil is that there is no God, no God who made the heavens and the earth, no God who is the owner of all. In fact, there is no heavens, right, only earth. And while the true church would never say this, uh, we do at times compromise. Sometimes Christians see God as aloof out of touch with reality. He made the world and he's out there somewhere, but he really has very little to do with our everyday life. There is a God, but there might as well not be. Or maybe we see God as very near, very close, in fact, so close that God has essentially become a part of the world rather than over it. We think of God as somehow contained in its processes rather than sovereign over the course of history. So you have the, the, uh, the, the, the compromise, but also the caricature. How do you caricature in the beginning God? I think the idea that Christians sometimes give is that God is the only thing that matters. Right? They seem to have, at times we seem to have, little touch with reality as we experience it, as if God's existence were the only thing that mattered. And that's not true, of course, right? Lots of things do matter. The existence of God is not the only thing that matters, though it does matter above all else. Uh, the existence of God is not the only thing that matters, though if it doesn't matter, nothing else does either. And yet what's more, God's existence is not everything because his bare existence doesn't take into account the gospel. Right? Lots of people believe in God, or at least in a God. But if we want to know what is most important to know about God, we, we must know that He exists and that He exists as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Christians do not believe in a generic God. We believe in the God who sent his son to bear the penalty of sin at the cross, to bury sin and guilt and death in the grave, and to overcome in his resurrection. Whether this God exists or not changes everything. Whether you are tempted to disbelieve or, or simply tempted to forget, the result is the same. Christians and non-Christians both often go through life as if there is no God, as if this present age is all there is and life is all on their shoulders. And so when you are tempted to limit your thinking to, to worldly wisdom or to define yourself relative to this age or to look to worldly power out there as ultimate, or to seek satisfaction in the things of earth, or to pursue the ends of this age as if they were the end-all and be-all. When you're tempted to act autonomously, when you're tempted to feel alone, remember God. Now, there is something more ultimate than this age, than this creation, than what our eyes can see. There is a wisdom not of this world, because in the beginning, God... There is, there is a more solid source of identity than this creation. Who we are is relative to who God is, because in the beginning, God. There is a power greater than the powers of this age, because in the beginning, God. There is a joy and satisfaction that the goods of this world cannot offer, because in the beginning, God. There are purposes bigger than the American dream, bigger than a well-paying job, bigger than an attractive spouse, bigger than a clean home or obedient kids or a good reputation, because in the beginning, God, you are not your own and you are never alone because in the beginning, God, don't forget God. When you want to do something you know is wrong, when you feel like the world is out of control, when everything in life has let you down, when the powers of this age overwhelm you, when the task ahead seems too hard, don't forget God. In the beginning, God. Right? He created the world through His Son for our good. He sustains the world through His Son for our good. He has redeemed the world through His Son for our good and for His glory. Don't forget God. In fact, set your mind on Him. And live every day in the context of the one who made you and sustains you, who loves you and has redeemed you through the death of his son for the glory of his name. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Help us to remember you. Help us to remember that before all things there was you. Help us to remember that the source of all things is you. Help us to remember that the sustainer and the redeemer of all things is you. Help us to remember that whatever else is going on, you are there and you are working and you are acting for our good and your glory. Help us to remember you and help us to rest in you day by day, moment by moment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.